0: And thank you Charlie Russell for um, this iconic uh, picture, some in my own family would say it's his greatest, of the free trappers, and it hangs in the art gallery of the Montana Historical Society, thank you Montana Historical Society. Um, I'm going to be covering more of the Flint Valley than the Bitterroot, but both uh, in what I refer to as the Mountain Man era, which uh, is... Just prior to when the miners and uh, uh, the gold miners and the silver miners show up in this part of the, of the world in 1865 is the date I picked because that's when Philipsburg is discovered. And going back from there about uh, 40 years to the first um, written account we have of the Phillipsburg area and the Flint Creek Valley. So here's just an orientation map. Um, uh, that shows kind of where we're down here, and uh, Phillipsburg is over here. This is the Flint Valley. So between the Bitterroot Valley and the Flint Valley, there's the Sapphire Range. There's Rock Creek, John Long Mountains, and finally you get to the uh, you get to the Flint Valley. And uh, this red line is uh, a system of trails that'll enter into the of the second part of my discussion, called sometimes called the Bitterroot Direct, that was a trail from Fort Owen to Phillipsburg and and points east. So uh, keep that all in mind as we as we proceed. Um, one of the fun things about this map is that you can find uh, the name of one of the prominent mountain men, Fred Burr, on Fred Burr Creek um, here up a little ways from uh, Stevensville and the Fred Burr Reservoir. And you can go over to Phillipsburg, there's the same thing, same name. There's Fred Burr Creek, Fred Burr Lake, and if we'd only made this map out over into here, there's Fred Burr Creek at uh, Deer Lodge. So this guy has his name. He's one of the guys we'll talk about. his name all over uh, the landscape of, of this part of western Montana. So... Um, There's the description of Philipsburg by the Philipsburg Chamber of Commerce, a 19th century mining town. That's how I got interested in the history of the area. I'm a geologist. Mining history comes very naturally to me. So this is the man for whom Philipsburg is named, Philip the greatest mining engineer of his era. And holy smoke, has it been 150 years already. Next year is the 150th, the sesquicentennial, of the founding of Philipsburg. So this little group of volunteers, the Granite County Historical Society, which I'm a member, um, has a couple of projects. We're putting in an operational stamp mill at the head of town the site of the old James Stewart Hope Mill site, and that'll be operational, we think, by next year. So if you're in Philipsburg next year, you maybe get a chance to see a, a stamp mill actually operate. And then we, uh, myself and Lorraine Dominey, who write this blog, Granite County History, um, we decided we'd try to figure out most of the stuff that took place prior to the mining era, at least get a, a handle on it. So we've been researching this this prior era, and you'll see today what we've come up with. So that is uh, Peter Skeen Ogden. And the... Uh, our source for uh, a lot of the first part of this talk is the Snake Country Journals, which are his daily journal from 1824 to 1826. Um, these molded away, you might say, in the archives of the Hudson Bay Company until um, 1950 when they were published, and it's uh, they've flown a little bit under the radar, so they've been missed by local historians and even by some of the professional historians. This one, it says Snake Country Journals, talk about what that is, but it doesn't say, you know, Flint Creek or anything like that in the title. So this book has flown under the radar a little bit, and we'll familiarize everybody with it a little bit today. There are three descriptions. This is a a, uh, trapping expedition of the uh, Hudson's Bay Company and uh, it's really 1825, there's a little bit of the last of 24, and um, there are three journals that uh, cover it, which is why one of the reasons I'm focusing on it is we get a pretty good snapshot in time because there's, th- there's this much information available on, on kind of what's going on in our part of the world uh, in that year. And it's, the, it's Ogden's journals themselves, It's also the second chapter of an interesting book that some of you are probably familiar with, The Traits of American Indian Life and Character, which was published shortly after Ogden died, published posthumously by a fur trader. Um, And this was a manuscript that uh, made its way into the uh, Hudson Bay archives, and they reworked it to a degree and then published it and one of the things that uh, is a little difficult to do is to sort out what the uh, original input of Peter Ogden is into this book, and how much is editorializing by, we think, Washington Irving, who was the sort of the best-selling author of, of the day, uh, Legends of Sleepy Hollow and other things that, that he wrote. And um, it's a little difficult to figure out, but it's a fairly valuable um, sort of Um, account of this expedition as well. And then there's the Kitson journals that are in the back of this book. Kitson was Ogden's assistant, and all of his journals are uh, kind of a check against uh, Ogden and against the um, uh, traits of American Indian life and character. I'll just briefly touch on uh, traits. The second chapter of traits is called The Red Feather. And it's about a a uh, Salish chief by the name of red feather who is uh, in Ogden's account uh, sort of the the bravest the most able uh, you know he's he's the superlative uh, chief and uh, he accompanies the Salish accompany the Hudson Bay Company on parts of the trapping expedition so uh, he's He's talking about Red Feather. He's Red Feather is um, he's obsessed with the idea that he will uh, steal a a beautiful black horse that belongs to the the rival Blackfeet. They're not in open warfare at this time. This is actually it's a little surprising to read. They have parleys and they uh, have some get they're very wary of each other, but it's not really open warfare uh, in this time frame. But in, in uh, Traits, at the end of the story of the Red Feather, he steals this black horse, goes riding up uh, away from the Blackfeet camp, and the, he turns to uh, sort of thumb his nose at the, at the Blackfeet, and they light a prairie fire which chases him down and kills him in the horse. Um, except, <laughs> this is, comes out of the imagination of Washington Irving, when you read the, we, I tried to follow through, Ogden's journal, and nothing like that happens in his daily journal, that is written content at the time. And you read Kitson's journal, and there's the same problem. Nothing like, no incident like this happens. Similar things, some of them do steal a horse from right in front of the tent of the Blackfeet chief. Okay, so there's things that are kind of similar, but not not really exact. And then Kitson splits from Ogden. Kitson's going to take the furs home. Okay, they've, 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 they've been trapping beavers. they got a whole bunch of them. He comes over into the Bitterroot Valley, goes down the Bitterroot, and he recounts that he gets down to Lolo, they call it Nez and who should come to his tent with a nice little present of fresh deer meat, but red feather. Oh. So, uh, no, he did not get killed in this situation, in the big hole at all. This was somehow... This was added for dramatic effect. So this is a very interesting book, uh, but it needs to be sorted out better to figure out how much of it is Ogden and how much is Washington Irving. Um, let's talk a little bit about this expedition. Uh, um, it's They start at what they call Flathead, flathead Trading Post. So it's up by... Uh, Thompson Falls, and that's going to be the beginning. There's 61 trappers in the expedition, plus Ogden. And uh, they're engagees, they're employees of Hudson Bay, in small number, like Kitson and others. And then there's the free trappers, and there's a big group of those. And those are, some of them are Canadians, but don't have all these people sorted out yet. There's some names we recognize. I, I don't have them quite all sorted out, but there's, there are Canadians. There are a lot of these Iroquois voyageurs, and um, so it's uh, uh, there's Matisse. It's, uh, it's a very mixed group, and uh, they also bring along their wives and their and their families with them. Now, one of them is Jocko Finley, one of the better known uh, uh, trappers at one point. He's an engagee and he's the highest paid uh, person. He's apparently a man of a lot of talent. But he has a huge family. And uh, he has, nobody's really sure how many wives that he had and how many children he had. But this was Father DeSmit's, um effort to trace out the, the Finley family tree, the Jocko Finley family tree. So I doubt if he had his whole family tree with him. But there's a lot of family go on this expedition. A lot, of, uh, a lot of their children and most of the, of the uh, trappers have one or sometimes several, uh, several wives with them. So it's like a small scale human migration moving across the countryside and trapping as they go. That's the image I want to portray anyway. Uh, this is one of the most interesting guys on the expedition. His name is John Gray. And he is uh, a, uh, this is a Nicholas Point, uh, drawing, uh, for those of you who are at uh, Sally Thompson's talk. And uh, uh, he is the, he's the de facto leader of this fairly large group of, uh, of Iroquois freemen. And he's very independent minded. In fact, both the preceding chief of this expedition, Alexander Ross the previous year, and Ogden have fits with, uh, with John Gray. And the problems are, he realizes that uh, the Americans will pay them a lot more for their uh, beaver pelts than the Hudson Bay. The Hudson Bay tries to be be the monopoly, right? They sell things to the freemen at a very high price, and then they pay as little as possible for the furs. Um, This comes out of, I think, the era when they were rivals with the Northwest Company, which is David Thompson and many of the uh, uh, earlier fur trapping and trading uh, expeditions in Montana. And they didn't make any money. And so they got weak and they got absorbed by Hudson Bay. At that point, Ogden is out of work. He's been, a very, he's been too belligerent of an employee of, uh, of the Northwest Company but the and so he has to go to England and beg for a job <laughs> and he gets a job and it's the worst job in the Hudson Bay Company that is to go on the snake country expedition it's already one of their two of their really great employees uh Finn and McDonald has led one a couple of years ago and says i'm not going back to that country when the when the beavers grow gold skin i'll go back and not before because it's very dangerous Uh, very dangerous country what we're talking about here is the headwaters of the snake river so we're at Idaho Falls some in Utah some in Wyoming a jackpot of beavers Ross says heck we could trap here we could employ the Shoshones to trap beavers for us and in a dozen years we wouldn't make a dent this place is full of beavers that's why they're going there but it's also very difficult conditions you have uh, numerous uh uh, tribes off of the plains like the Blackfeet in particular that you know, give the Hudson Bay Company fits. So, so that's, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of the story of, of Gray is that he, doesn't, he gets upset with uh, how low the pay is and how high the cost is and leads a mutiny of the Iroquois uh, freemen down in Utah and there's, the Americans show up and they're willing to pay more there's an American group of trappers, and Gray's uh, contingent goes over to the American side. So there's another incident like that that happens near Phillipsburg, where a whole bunch of freemen will not, they will not follow orders from uh, Peter Ogden, because Ogden, when he gets down below Phillipsburg, he wants to go over into the Deer Lodge Valley, which is considered dangerous, and all but seven of his freemen uh, uh, abandoned him. So there's mutiny problems on this trip, and Gray is the ringleader of the first mutiny, you might say. And uh, when you read his arguments, it they, are, they make a lot of sense. He lays out the story to Ogden. Hey, you're way overcharging us for traps, for guns, for all the things we need, and paying us this piddling amount. We can make a lot more over here. And Ogden regards him as his nemesis, or as a villain, because he leads this mutiny. But everything Gray says makes sense. Um, in fact, a couple of years later, Ogden is writing the exact same points back to headquarters. Hey, we've got to pay these guys more. This is ridiculous. We're trying to make too much money off the Freeman. So Gray and Ogden are antagonists, but they're both, in many ways, are both attractive characters. and Make a good, uh, a good book, maybe even a movie. So a little bit about this trip. Um, Here's Missoula, Bitterroot River. The red is the trip. They come through uh, Gibbons Pass, down into the Big Hole Valley, which has buffalo and it has a lot of beavers. And then they go way down here in the land. We're we're kind of down in the snake countries down here. And then they come back. I said Kitson takes off and goes back up this way to go back to fort with the furs. But what Ogden does is, he travels uh, down the Big Hole River, crosses the Continental Divide at, we think, uh, Mill Creek Pass out of Anaconda. So if you're driving kind of between the Big Hole and Anaconda, you go over the Mill Creek Summit. Very high mountainous area, but if you look at it, it looks, looks passable for horses when you look at the ridges and yeah, you can see how it could be done. And maybe that's the setting for uh, free trappers <laughs> because there's, a, there's quite a mountain range standing right there next to you. There's, there's the Anaconda the Pimpler Range right there. It's a very impressive spot. That's how they get over into our part of the world. And they travel to Anaconda. And then this is a trip right around the Flint Range. They go up. Let's take a little closer look at just this little part. We've put together a map. So um, uh, here's uh, here's Anaconda. They go up this kind of uh, steep mountainous area to where Silver Lake is. and he describes it. It's one mile long, so we kind of know where he is. Then, they don't see Georgetown Lake because that's a later reservoir built by the mining companies. They descend into the Phillipsburg Valley, camp near where three streams come together, which is this one, this one, Trout Creek. So that's kind of the area right there. And they're they're trapping as they go. Uh, incidentally, there's no uh, bison in the Phillipsburg Valley when they come through. There are. Uh, there's a large um, uh, archaeological site right along Fred Burke Creek that I'll show you in a moment. It's full of bison bones, but sometime prior to this 1825 expedition, they've been hunted out. So it's when you look at a map like um, uh, uh, that was made by Ferris, and he shows the edge of the Bison Range. It runs right, right between Deer Lodge and Phillipsburg. The edge of, of of, uh, of bison in Montana. To the east, yes, to the west, no. Uh, this area we're talking about is right on the edge and they're probably, they're probably not wiped out. There's probably a few hiding up in the mountains but not enough to bother with. And So, Fillsburg doesn't meet any, uh, any Salish Indians or anything like that in the Fillsburg Valley because it's not a bison country. That's what they're really interested in going to at this moment. Now, in, in previous times, they were probably the ones who hunted them up or hunted them d- down to a lower level. So, then they um, they come around the corner, and here's the Deer Lodge Valley. They're trapping as they go. He says, "Well, we would go up the Black, the little Blackfoot, but it's just been trapped out by the Blackfeet Indians." So they're trapping as they go. But several places, like for example, when they first come to Anaconda, um, they say, "Well, we're going to head up this way," but we kind of heard that. Maybe the Kootenai Indians have already trapped this out earlier in the year. So we hope we get some. It turned out to be pretty good. They get 590 beavers, which are worth you know, quite a little bit of money in this trip, in this little trip around the Flint Range. And um, so it's pretty good beaver country, even though they have competition from, the, uh, from, the, uh, from these tribes. So let's uh, move on here. I mentioned that at Phillipsburg, there is a place that was used for millennia as a campsite. This is a prolific um, uh, Indian, uh, Paleo-Indian to more recent artifact site, and it's this is the this is uh, Fred Burke Creek, and here's this beautiful little protected, kind of out of view. There's a kind of a ridge here, protected round meadow, and. There's been some archaeological work going on there, supervised by an archaeologist who graduated from the University of Montana. And they're finding quite a bit of uh, interesting uh, artifacts. And they've done a little age dating, and it goes back thousands of years. There's some of the, uh, uh, there's a kind of a, well, sometimes called a Shoshone knife that's been found on site, probably made out of chert. There's some uh, obsidian. And I think we're more at the beginning than the end of figuring out where the sources are for some of these artifacts that are coming out of the upper uh, Flint Valley. Um, just one of the as they go into the Deer Lodge Valley, he gives what I think is uh, the first description of Warm Springs. And so then you know where you are in his journal. Because there's only one Warm Springs. There it is. And he did, he he, you know what day that he's reached there, and it was using these kind of landmarks. that We kind of figured out where the campsites are in a general way, as you go around the as you go around the range. They'd be interesting archaeological targets, I think, these uh, these various campsites. Now, that's kind of it for this trip that the fur trappers and fur traders take through our part of the world. We're gonna we're gonna jump ahead to. The 1850s, and talk a little bit about what's going on in that era. And um, first is my title here is the for this part of the talk is the land of sun and flowers. So Fred Burr, one of these uh, one of these 1850s mountain men, he actually came in with the railroad survey, then lives in the Bitterroot Valley, comes to the Fillmore Valley, goes to Deer Lodge, travels all around, becomes elected sheriff. Becomes elected to the, to the Constitutional Convention, He's a really interesting guy, and this is one of his coinages. So, to give you an idea how positive he is, he eventually takes a job back in Washington, D.C., and what he really wants to do is come back to good old Montana, the land of sun and flowers. First thing I just want to say is is that uh, in the 1850s, it was was probably it was probably a pretty good place. Uh, uh, not too dangerous, although problems with uh, with Blackfeet uh, tribes coming over the uh, um, in various ways, getting over into western Montana, and there were are, are still battles. But there, it's a pretty good defensive position that that the um, uh, the Salish and the these mountain men associated with the Owen uh, Fort Owen. A pretty good situation that they have, and they they seem to like it. Uh, to use those kinds of terms, our sources on this time frame. Again, it's a snapshot, but you get this great description from the Pacific Railroad Survey, and this is the Stevens Expedition. You have notes by John Mullen, uh, letters that describe a lot of the countryside and the people. So this is a this is a well described time frame, maybe from 53 to about 58 or a little later. There are journals of various pioneers. Uh, Owen himself keeps his journal, and then Fred Burr keeps a journal, and his friends, the Stewart brothers, James and Granville Stewart, keep journals. So we have, that's kind of the sources of information we have for this later era. So this guy is not a mountain man, it's it's uh, Colonel F- um, uh, Frederick Lander. Lander's maybe the greatest of the railroad surveyors. He is the one who surveys for the transcontinental uh, down in you know, Wyoming, and he, he kind of convinces Congress that that's the way to go, not up here for the first transcontinental railroad. He's a great railroad surveyor, happens to come right through Granite County. He's on Pacific Railroad Survey, doesn't get along with the boss, with Stevens, because Stevens has very powerful personal reasons why he wants this northern Pacific to be the route because he owns a lot of land out in Seattle, his family does. Because so he doesn't get along with Lander, but Lander is a really good, uh, really good surveyor. And he takes a trip. His job is to survey passes up by Great Falls and then to head for Fort Owen. So how he does it is, this is the Blackfoot River and this is the Clark Fork. Here's a Missoula and here's Fort Owen. But instead of taking the river route, he goes over the top of the Garnet Range, gets to the river. They take a right. uh, They take a left, actually, by the way they're looking, and and go right over the mountains to Fort Owen. And this is a trail. uh, It's a it's a Native American trail, all right. But it's shown to them by a a Blackfeet uh, um, associate uh, human role. And this is the trail that's being used for raiding in the, uh, in the Bitterroot Valley. This is the way the Blackfeet come. So that's, I think, the, the first description we have of that particular trail, and it is as a Blackfeet raiding trail. Uh, let's briefly cover in the late, this later mount, Mountain Man era, this 1850s, we have gold and rumors of gold. Uh, Francois Finlay, if you uh, just read any good account of gold mining in Montana, uh, operated a, a trading post near the mouth of Gold Creek, uh, you know, near Garrison and Drummond, and uh, the mining was grub-staked by Angus McDonald of the Hudson Bay Company. So Hudson's Bay is a, is still in Montana, and and still involved and involved more than is sometimes appreciated in this early gold prospecting. He has in Gold Creek. He's got a a pretty good gold mine. And there's his grubstake, steak, uh, the guy who grub steaked him, Angus McDonald. And here's, I think, Duncan McDonald with Charlie Russell up in Glacier Park. And being McDonald's, these are the descendants of the McDonald's with Angus's bagpipes. So this is the group we're talking about. So one of the stories that we get out of the early newspapers is one of the mountain men, William Graham, tells a story that in 1849, this is told to him by Angus McDonald, that the Hudson's Bay Company sent a prospecting group to uh, the Flint Valley. This is where, why the Flint Valley is called the Flint Valley. Flint, Flint was mined here for millennia by uh, Native Americans. And right near there is a one of the better gold placers uh, in this part of the world. And William Graham says that they went to, they somehow found out there was gold there. He sent an expedition to uh, Prospect for gold and they were chased off by Blackfeet Indians. But somebody had found some gold there in 1849 and that would be probably the first little bit of gold panning in the state. Not a mine like, uh, like Finley had, that has substantial production, but somebody must have gotten a few flakes. So this, Getting a few flakes becomes inflated through uh, through storytelling. Uh, there are um, there's, there's, there within the Salish tribe, there are people who know of this. They were probably on this expedition that was supposed to go and do some panning, and the, the word kind of seeps out into the uh, Salish community. And Father DeSmet picks it up and keeps under his hat for a while but finally spills the beans to a prospector by the name of Harkness, and, this, and Harkness, when he comes into uh, southwest Montana, he immediately heads for Flint Creek because that's Father DeSmet's El Dorado, but it's not, I mean, there's no, it's not as described. There's no stream with a bottom covered with gold or anything like that. DeSmet didn't speak the Salish language, so he relied on translators, and somehow this story grew and grew. But I think it has an effect on the later, on, on the pioneers, quite an effect. Uh, this is Desmet. Here's the story in 1859 as he's preparing to take a trip uh, uh, and rushing to Fort Bend. He wants to visit this site, but he can't. This is his trunk that uh, comes. The, the biographer, of Father Desmet, Robert Carricker, sent me this picture from 1859 from the from the trip when he found out about this uh, rumored gold. So that's kind of a nice artifact to have. So lastly. I, th- I think we're, we're finding out that James and Granville Stewart uh, show up in the country, oops, we don't want to give a happy birthday yet, uh, in 1858 and explore Flint Creek. And it's probably because of these rumors of, of an El Dorado. And the first place they go is Flint Creek. These are the founders of basically Deer Lodge, Phillipsburg, great, uh, important pioneers in Montana history. And uh, uh, so, they, they're probably moved by rumors of gold. And when they get to Flint Creek, they don't find anything, it's not very good, but they get told by the discoverer of the Gold Creek mine, Francois Finlay, that well, maybe down over here, I had some luck down at this other creek. So they move on to Gold Creek after meeting uh, Benetzi, or Finlay, Benetzi is his nickname, the discoverer of Gold Creek and then later concoct the story that they were the first discoverers of gold in Montana, even though it have been told about it by Fred Burr and Benetzi. So it's a very, uh, uh, there's a historic version of history that the Stuarts discovered gold shows up in, in Montana history textbooks, K. Ross Tools book. This is a line of baloney that has somehow been, continued to be perpetrated for a century or more. So the, what's important to us about the Stuarts is They also get involved in the silver mining and get involved in the establishment of Phillipsburg. So this is how this whole thing leads to the run-up of of Phillipsburg, is that the Stuarts hear rumors of gold, uh, go around the the Flint Valley, learn about it, and later on, when silver is discovered, move in the St. Louis and Montana mining company and establish the town. So that's how it connects back to the beginning. And... uh, This is a sketch of Phillipsburg done in 1867 by Granville Stewart that sits down in the Mormon archives they've allowed us to use and to copy. But here it is. Here's here's Phillipsburg, main street of Phillipsburg. Here's the uh, mill that was built to process the ore. That's all the timber piled in front. And somebody I was talking to, their relatives, worked on that timber, getting getting the timber for that uh, Hope Mill. Thank (laughs) you.